Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. And as you uh, sit down, turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we will begin. We will, again, be sort of taking a tour throughout a number of, of scriptures. But we will start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And I'll read them. They'll be on the screen. You read them in your copy of God's Word or on the screen as, as I read them out loud. Here's what it says. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I don't know if you are uh, this way, but I love the Olympic Games. We just, we just sort of finished them. The good news is if you're an Olympic fan, they're coming up again in a couple of months, right? How many people watch some, some or all of the Olympics? Not as many of you as I thought. Shame on all of you. It's a spectacle, right? Um, but we watch these athletes who have given years of their lives to uh, perfecting the thing that they are dedicated to. That one event, that one sport, um, they want to be the best. And we watched as they put on that skill and athleticism and that dedication on display. And it's really no surprise then that there are sometimes superlatives for the people that win the Olympic Games, that get that highest honor, they stand on the top of the podium and get the gold medal. For instance, traditionally the man who wins the 100-meter dash, the 100-meter sprint in track and field is known as the world's fastest man, right? And the man who wins the decathlon is known as the world's best athlete. Do you remember that? Do you know that? I, I don't know. And for many uh, people, these titles are so, sort of symbolic of masculinity. In other words, that, that's what a real man looks like. And I think a couple of years ago, we saw something really interesting. One of these guys who was recognized as the world's best athlete came out and on national television, he declared that though he had been born biologically male, that he had considered himself always, or for a long period of time, a woman. Boy, that really threw a wrench into our understanding of the way 
the world works. At least I don't know if it did for you, it did for me. And I think I observed three responses to this, this person's um, declaration on television. The first was there was a lot of affirmation and encouragement and cheering, cheering him on. Like, good job. You did a great job. We're so proud of you. You've declared your truth. There was a second response. And I think a lot of us may have responded this way. We just sort of dismissed the announcement out of hand. Oh, that's wrong. Oh, clearly, we, we, we don't even want to think about it. We don't want to hear his side of the story. We don't want to hear anything about it. Just forget that. And there was a third response, and I think it was the people who sat in the middle of those two, and they kind of understood that this changed a lot about the world. What we thought we knew before that evening, all of a sudden was a lot more complex. This was an issue that needed understanding and study and awareness and, and sympathy and, and just all of these things to help us understand what was going on here. And I think a lot of Christians at that moment sort of dismissed this thing out of hand. Don't need to think about it. Don't need to understand it. We don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable. There's a significant yuck factor, if you will. But I think for a lot of Christians, that was based on cultural norms. I've always grown up understanding and thinking and knowing one thing, and this is completely different, and I just don't want to think about it. And I think we've got to stop and say, okay, let's think about the complexity of this issue. And when we were asked uh, this summer uh, all these questions, a number of questions came up on this topic. Um, we, we phrased it this way this morning, does God care about my sexual identity? Is that something that he's even interested in? And the answer, of course, is of course he does. Of course he does. But I think it's an important topic for us to stand back this morning and not just answer, answer in a simplistic way, but to really dig down and see what the Bible has to say. We, we can't use an approach that doesn't appreciate the complexity of this issue. Now, let me warn you, I am not going to get to a place where I answer every single question this morning, but I do want to open God's word and see what he has to say. So if we ask it again, does God care about my sexual identity? I want to answer it in this way, and I want to say it very specifically, and you can read it up here. God cares about how human beings express themselves sexually because God designed sex and gender. He also cares, God does, about how we relate to one another based on other people's sexuality because every single person is an image bearer. They bear the image of God. So we open this morning at the beginning to 1 Thessalonians, and I would say this to begin from 1 Thessalonians, is that God has a standard for you, including your sexuality. That's what Paul instructs this church in. Wouldn't it be nice, by the way, the passage says this, do you want to know what God's will is? I, I can tell you definitively what God's will is. And, and if you're a Christian this morning, or if you claim the name of Christ, that, that's right, like the ultimate question. What's God's will for my life? And Paul tells it to the Thessalonian church. He says, this is the will of God. Look at it, verse 3, your sanctification. God's will for our life is that we would be set apart as holy unto the Lord. 
And sanctification is one of those words that we've mentioned from time to time here in this context. It's that ongoing work of the gospel that continues even after we profess our faith in Christ, right? Even after we say, I believe in Jesus' death, I believe in his resurrection, I believe he died for me, and that by placing my faith in him, I can have forgiveness and new life. And then the Holy Spirit comes in, indwells us, empowers us, and allows us to conform our lives to the image of Christ. And it's that ongoing work that is God's will for us, our sanctification. And here, uh, Paul tells us, he goes one step further, and he gives that practical application. It's God's will for our sanctification that we would be molded into the image of Christ in every area. And yes, Paul says, including our sexuality. He says this, our sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's there in verse 3. See, God has a standard, and it applies to all of our lives, every area of our lives, including our sexuality, which is one of those areas that we kind of want to keep to ourselves. We want it to be private. We don't want to talk about it. Well, too late. You're in this room this morning, all right? And, and I think for those of us who are conservative, Christian, we, that, that seems fairly obvious, right? Of course God cares. That's sort of straightforward. It's hard to argue that God does not present over and over and over again in Scripture standards. Now, now what some people might try and do, and this is what's happening in the world today, is they might argue that that standard doesn't apply because of changes in society over time. Or they might say, the standard um, uh, is, is not exactly applying to my situation. It's, it's very general, only applies over here. Well, let's answer those objections just briefly here. Paul, of course, instructs the church there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, to abstain from sexual immorality. And in that passage, he uses what is a very general term. And uh, typically, uh, Bible translators do translate it sexual immorality. But the word, if you look it up, refers to fornication, lewdness, or any sexual sin. I think Paul uses a general term for this very reason. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to limit it to one thing or another. So Paul says, God desires your sanctification. God desires your holiness. God desires that you conform yourself to the image of Christ in these areas. And what falls under that umbrella? Does, does lust fall under that umbrella? Yes. Adultery? Of course. S sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant? Yes. Homosexuality? Pornography? Yes. All of the above fall under this umbrella. And I was thinking about it. It would be helpful for us to maybe define, and we're going to unpack this a little bit, what is sexual immorality? Because he just uses one word there. God cares about this one area, this one word area of your life. So let's unpack that a little bit. What does sexuality, sexual immorality include? I would say that it includes denying God's specific design for our identity and ignoring the parameters for our God-given sexual desires. Okay, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. And we would look not just at Paul in this definition, right? We would look at Jesus. 
Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants people to understand that God's standard for holiness in the area of their sexuality extends to every area of their sexuality. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, right? Big number in the Ten Ten Commandments. That's one of them. Don't commit adultery. And Jesus says, some of you have said, okay, adultery is off limits, but everything outside of it, and Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. It's beyond that. The principle is at play. God is concerned for the whole of our sexual selves, and he wants that to be marked by holiness, coming into line with his character. So so what about this objection that this is a command reflective of a certain culture that is different than our culture today? Does the same standard apply across all of history? And here we have to step back and acknowledge the Bible is written to a specific group of people in a specific place, in a specific time, with specific circumstances. And all of those things are culturally bound. So when we read the letter to the Thessalonians, it helps us to understand what Paul is talking about when we understand who they are and what their circumstances are. Uh, and, And some people have used this idea to disregard the Bible's sexual ethic. They say it's outdated. They say it only applies to those cultures and those times. But we need to understand that the Bible speaks also, not only does it speak to a specific people in a specific place, in a specific time, with specific circumstances, but the Bible also has profit and speaks to all people across all times in all circumstances. And here's where we find ourselves this morning, is that both Jesus and Paul, when they speak to this issue, often what they do is they link it back God's standard of sexuality all the way to when God created us. Whether they're addressing sexual immorality or sexual identity, they say God designed us in a very particular way and in order to meet his standard of holiness, we've got to go back to the design. It's not bound only to one culture. God's design is from the beginning of time and it's connected to that perfect creation before sin distorts things. See, in our day, we are encouraged, we are um, uh, challenged, we are promoted to question authority. And this is one of the ways that, that people do that. We're given permission to distrust authority, especially when it conflicts, conflicts with our feelings and our experiences. And, and spiritual authority is no exception. People have... Uh, taking it upon themselves well, to, to say, uh, I'm not sure that when God says that, God really means that. Even as Christians, we want to follow God's will for our lives, but when it conflicts with our deepest desires, we are often cho- tempted to choose those desires and explain away God's authority. And the more we are inclined to question or dismiss God's authority, the more we will be able to find people who will add their own legitimacy to our interpretation of things. Because they've also rejected authority. And they've also found what they think are loopholes and holes in God's standard. 
See, so then we, we, we encounter a young man who struggles with pornography and he excuses it, right? He's single, he works hard. I would marry someone if God brought them to me, but God doesn't seem to be bringing me any, any woman to marry. Therefore, who does it really hurt if I engage this desire? Um, or maybe it's a young woman who would never go out and seek an adulterous affair, but when that guy at work notices her, um, she thinks to herself, you know, my husband doesn't really appreciate everything I do for him at home. Um, this guy, this guy sees me. He recognizes my value. I deserve that attention. It's really what's lacking in my relationship with my husband when I go home. Or maybe it's a young man who doesn't exactly fit the masculine stereotype. And he begins to wonder what's wrong with him. Why don't I fit in with the other guys? They make fun of me. They call me gay. Maybe I'm gay. Maybe, maybe God made me differently. He's rejected by the majority culture, and so he finds that community along the fringes of society in the LGBT culture. And those moments of justification can metastasize into sin. And sin damages the people who God's standards are meant to protect. You see, we find ourselves just like Satan in the garden, listening to that voice and saying, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? When he says this, is that what he really meant? Is that what he really said? And people questioning God's word and God's goodness start to promote their happiness above God's standard. Um, I grew up, I was a soccer player, uh, loved the game, played it from the time I was four or five years old all the way through high school. And when I became an adult and uh, stopped having opportunities to play, I began coaching, helped out with the high school team in our town uh, for a number of years. All in, I spent uh, at one point 30 plus consecutive seasons uh, on the soccer pitch, doing, doing what I love, playing and coaching, all of those things. And then there came an opportunity in our area where we were living at the time for me to referee. And I thought to myself, well, I've been doing this a long time. Makes sense. I can earn a couple extra bucks. I'm going to go uh, do this referee thing. The, the rules clinic will be a cakewalk. I know everything there is to know about the game of soccer. And then I went to the rules clinic, and I came to understand that there is a depth to the rules. There is a structure to the rules that I had never really understood from the standpoint of the rules side of things, from the referees side of things. Each and every rule of the game had a reason and contributed to the beauty of the game. And understanding those standards in a deeper way not only made me a better coach and player, which I continued to do, it also deepened my love for this game that I already loved in a profound way. God's standards are the same. We think that they're going to be restrictive. We think that they're going to take away from our fulfillment and enjoyment of life. But instead, they unlock this deeper, more intimate relationship with Him. And I think once we accept that God has given us a standard, we've got to understand, okay, where is this standard based? 
And how is this based on his design? So that's what we're going to look at next. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That's where we learn about God's design for all of life and all of creation. And again, we ask this question, does God care about my sexual identity? Answer, not only does God care about our sexual identity, but he gave it to us as a gift to accomplish our purpose and to bring fulfillment as long as we engage according to his design. And God's design is very, very clear. We're back at the beginning, just like Jesus, just like Paul, and there's really two aspects of creation and creation's design in terms of humans and human sexuality that we want to look at. And again, very basic. I'm not plumbing the depths of this here. If we walk away and we think we understand everything, uh, we're mistaken, okay? First, uh, this is the passage that Mike mentioned earlier on when we did the kids' AMA. God designed us to live in community. Look at it. It's going to come up on the screen. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. We see the first hint that something is missing in creation when, when the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And then he goes on after man is created and he recognized man does, that there's no counterpart for him. The rest of the animal kingdom had a counterpart, but he didn't. And so God provides Adam with that companionship, that ability to fulfill the creation mandate by bringing him a woman. He brings him a woman to marry and to have companionship with. That leads us to the second aspect of creation that we want to look at, is we need to recognize that God created human beings in a very specific way. He created them male and female. And we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In God's design, he creates what turns out to be a biological and gender binary. In other words, there's two, male and female. Uh, that's what it says, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In fact, he created us in his image, and his image is reflected in this binary, male and female. He created them. In the search for companionship, and in an effort to fulfill the creation mandate, God created this unique, binary, gendered counterpart for every person. And these two aspects, combined with God's unique creation of humanity, because we're the crown jewels of creation, right? Are what identify human beings as being made in the image of God. And I would say this, and I know this isn't, the whole story, so let me get it out and let me say some things about it before you react negatively to me. It is the normal expectation for human beings created in the image of God to reflect that divine union in marriage and to pursue the fulfillment of the creation mandate through bearing and raising children. And we, we express our divine design, including our sexual design, within the marriage relationship that's instituted by God. Now, let's recognize there's challenges to that, right? Not everyone gets married. Not everyone has kids. Not everyone's able to have kids. And so we can't equate, when we think about sexual identity, we can't simply equate sexual companionship with fulfilling God's mandate for our lives. And some who experience 
same-sex attraction, argue that since marriage is God's ordained means to answer the question of companionship, that same-sex unions must be legitimate. You see how they did that? See how that happens? But Scripture, look at it, think about it, allows that not everyone is going to find a counterpart for marriage. Paul talks about this to the Corinthians. Some remain single, and some should remain single. Others, of course, lose their spouse in an untimely manner. Others are never able to have kids or, for some reason, don't have kids. And those who are unmarried and those who don't have kids as a significant part of their life, um, they are more free in some ways, Paul says to the Corinthians, to pursue God's purpose for their life. And, and pursuing God's purpose for a person's life is not synonymous with marriage and procreation. Even as significant, even as central as to the creation mandate as those things are, those gifts from God, we, we can find companionship outside of sexual intimacy. But God does give us as, uh, that gift to answer that question in part. Second challenge when it comes to God's good gift of sexuality is that that sexuality experiences the effects of sin. Every single one of us, every human being throughout history is touched by the curse of sin and therefore their sexual desire is touched by the curse of sin. This God-given gift becomes disordered in some way. And in some people, this disordering expresses itself in a mental battle. They have lustful thoughts. They have fantasy. In others, it results in pursuing the desires of their sexuality outside of God's standards, whether that be in a heterosexual relationship or a homosexual relationship. In still others, it results in a misunderstanding of the identity that God gave them. They were born biologically one way, but they feel another way and pursue that. The person who seeks to act on those disordered desires, what they've done is they've denied their identity, that they are image bearers of God. They've allowed their desires to take precedence over that call to holy living and sanctification. And every single one of us, in one way or another, has experienced disorders touched by the curse of sin. But a lot of times in modern, conservative Christianity, we've created this hierarchy that some sins are more acceptable than others. We think that homosexuality, transgenderism, those are the worst we think to ourselves, not only does the Bible tell us, but nature tells us that. And it's easy for us to excuse other sinful expressions of our sexuality because they're familiar to us. Coarse jesting, dirty talk, oh, it's just boys being boys. Sex outside of marriage, what do you expect? Besides, in a couple of weeks, they're going to have a piece of paper that totally legitimizes what they just did. Here's one we don't think about. Young women watching Hallmark movies or reading romance novels 24-7 and living in that fantasy world. How big of a deal is that really? See, but that's an expression of these desires that have been marked by sin sometimes. 
It's easier for us to point out the disordered desires of the LGBT community than to speak to some of the sexual sins in our own community. We divide the world between us and them. But God's design for human sexuality is for everyone. And all of us struggle to live up to that standard if we are not living by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. So I would challenge you this morning, I would challenge myself, ask yourself, do you think of these things, lust and pornography and fantasy and fooling around, do you think of those things as somehow more acceptable than same-sex attraction, than gender confusion? And if so, why? Now, the Bible points out some complicated things. The consequences may, may be different. But each and every one of us, in pursuing our own desires, have hardened hearts and darkened minds. And some of these desires, more so than others, reflect further hardening of hearts and further darkening of minds. But just because someone struggles with desires that are different than mine, that does not fundamentally make them different than me. Both of us are struggling to realize God's design in our lives and live up to God's holy standards. I've had a few opportunities over the years to um, go see notable works of art around the world. Um, and it's interesting to me because I am not an artist. If I were to show you, you know, put up on the screen a painting or a drawing or you know, a sculpture, God forbid, <laughs> you would say, oh, did your toddler do that at some point? I'm just not, okay? But sometimes I look at these famous works of art and I think to myself, is that really appreciably any better than something that I could do? I mean, there's like two parallel lines or two intersecting lines and a couple of splotches of paint. They say, that is one of the greatest works of art of all time and it's worth $5 million. And I go, really? Jackson Pollock, do you guys know him? Looks like some paint splattered on a drop cloth and they put the drop cloth off and they go, what a genius. And I go, eh, maybe, I don't know. There's a comedian, maybe you've heard his bit, his joke. Brian Regan, he, he has a joke about Picasso when Picasso looks like he painted a face but it was all scrambled by eggs and he says, you know, Pablo, two eyes on the same side of the head, eh, hence the low score, it doesn't really work. Then no one else, anyway, yeah, okay. But if you listen to someone who knows about art and they, they walk you through, this is what the artist is doing and this is, how, this is the design behind it and the emotion and the feeling, all of a sudden you gain an appreciation for what's going on. As you see the design and the principles behind it, the beauty and the artistry of what's been accomplished start to, start to come alive to you. And I think for us, as we understand God's design, it helps us to see His good work and how others have trampled on that design through their own misunderstanding. So God's standard and God's design. These, these would comprise what I would call, and what one author called, um, the theological side of this. It's very important that we have a good theology of sex, that we are able to answer clearly and concisely and with conviction, does God have a design for what my sexual identity is? Does, I, does God care about what my sexual identity is? It's very important for us to be able to answer that yes and with conviction. Now, we haven't touched on every aspect of it this morning. Please don't understand that you're an expert. I certainly am not. 
This is complex. It's a nuanced uh, uh, topic. But it's important that we say to ourselves, my view of sex is going to come under the authority of God's standards. Whatever he says, I will do. I will seek to understand it, and I will seek to apply it to my own life. And I would say, for those that are here this morning that are 30 or 35 years old or younger than that, this is going to be a challenge for you. Because you have been immersed in a world that has told you that there is no objective standard. That all of these expressions of truth are equally acceptable. That every person has autonomy and personal freedom to express their desires as they want. So if a person identifies as gay or lesbian, or if a person is biologically male but, ex- but, but lives as a female, or if a person lives with their boyfriend or girlfriend, all of these things are natural and normal, and we should have no judgment on them. They're a normal part of the culture. They're represented and accepted and even applauded in the media we watch. If you are a young person who is a follower of Christ, you have to drive a stake in the ground and say, my standard is God's standard. God's design is how I understand the design of the human being. And hold on to those things as truth, knowing that as you hold on to those things, you are going to be flying in the face of culture. On the other hand, if you are 35 or 40 or more years old, you have lived much of your life in a world where the default is toward a more traditional sexual ethic. Now, that's not to say that uh, all of these All of these disordered desires haven't been there and haven't been available and existed, but we've lived in a world that has mostly recognized that those things are outside on the fringes. They're on the edges of society. They're on the edges of what is acceptable. And the problem is that many people, especially those of us who are older and conservative and Christian, have taken a simplistic stand where we don't even have to think about those because no one is talking about them. And maybe we've even weaponized it against the people that we don't understand. And so I would say to us this morning, kind of as we move toward the last moments, it is not only important that we have and stand on a proper theology, but as that author that I was mentioning earlier suggested, we also need to have a proper posture towards others, especially those who struggle with their sexuality differently than we do. So let's turn to Matthew. Let's turn to some words of Jesus here. God cares about our posture, no matter another person's sexuality. I would say this, and maybe it is going to be provocative to you this morning. Maybe you'll want to disagree. Please hear me out. If Jesus came to earth In the year 2021, I have no doubt that he would have friends and spend time with people who identify as transgender, who struggle with same-sex attraction. Maybe you don't agree with that statement. I'm going to try and look at some scripture that will help us, that will point us in that direction, help us understand that. Or I wonder even if you agree, in theory, yeah, Jesus would probably do that. If you struggle with that, 
I'll confess, I do. I was walking down the street. I was out of town this week, walking down the street, coming toward me, two guys holding hands. I was like, it, it knocked me off my, off my concentration for a moment. I'm not used to that. That's not my context. But that doesn't change the fact that while a lot of us spend our time fighting for the proper theology, there are people outside of the walls of our church who need Christ, but they find themselves living a lifestyle contrary to Scripture and living and dying without ever experiencing the love of any Christian. That, that is tragic. You, you know, at least you've heard this before, I, I suspect, that Jesus was a notable friend of sinners, right? That's what it says in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 18 and 19. Remember, that was not a compliment, right? right? You know that. If Jesus had a church home, that would have come from people within inside the church, that was slander by the Pharisees. And we've got to recognize that some of the moral decay of the people that Jesus associated with ended up affecting his reputation. Look at what it says. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of sinners. Jesus' reputation was on the line. I don't know about you, but I tend to be protective of my reputation. I categorize sometimes, and maybe you do too, my friendship with sinners. Is someone an angry person? Oh, okay. I can, I can get my, my head around that. Are they a murderer? Oh, well, I can't be friends with them. Are, are they a KKK member? I would never hang out with that person. What about someone who tells, you know, like mildly racist jokes? Nah, what's the big deal? It's just a joke. We categorize things like this. Is the couple living together before marriage? I can look the other way. What about if they're living a lifestyle of homosexuality? We, we tend to immediately want to mount up on our high horse. What's the difference? I think the difference is that we're concerned for our reputation. I don't want to be seen as uh, giving any quarter to that sinful idea. Maybe their particular sin makes me uncomfortable. It's easier to condemn them, especially knowing that when we condemn them, we're going to hear agreement from those who hold similar theological and ethical views to us. I want to suggest to you, though, that Jesus was not concerned with what others thought, especially religious people who were only concerned with outward appearance and their own reputation. Jesus associated with sinful people because he knew what they needed and he knew he had the answers to what they needed. Let's turn back a couple of chapters in Matthew to Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read a little more than will come on the screen. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. There he goes. You know, that friend of sinners. And when the Pharisees, verse 11, saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus overhears them, verse 12, 
and he interrupts. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, Jesus says, and not sacrifice. The Pharisees were great at sacrifice. They were not so great at mercy. For I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus isn't concerned with outward appearance of morality and religiosity. The Pharisees had that in spades. They were really, really good at that. Jesus is demonstrating here to us the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. I love God, I dedicate myself to God, and the expression of that is that I care and love for my neighbor, my fellow person. But, but here's a reminder, Jesus is not just befriending them to show them that Christians aren't all bad, right? He is certainly demonstrating kindness, but his motivation is that they need treatment for their spiritual sickness, They need a relationship with the living God of the universe, and he knows he can provide it for them. I think sometimes we try and get close to people, we try and befriend them, we try and show kindness to them, but we make a couple of mistakes. We either ignore their behavior altogether, we think, I'm just going to be kind, and hopefully that'll do the trick, or we focus exclusively on their behavior. If you change the way you act, you can be closer to God. You and I need to be comfortable saying to our friends, saying to those we know, you are searching for love and happiness by expressing your sexual identity, but you're doing so in a way that's going to leave you unfulfilled. Let me share with you about the God of the universe who designed everything about you, including your sexuality, and he's given it to you in a way that can have meaning and companionship and purpose, all those things you're looking for. Think about it. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he demonstrates a a care for people. Even the worst. Even the dirty ones. Even the ones with whom he certainly had nothing in common, or seemingly nothing in common. Do I, do you, really care for people, or do we just want them to stop sinning in ways that make us feel uncomfortable? They can tell the difference. You know that? About the way we're treating them. You probably have people in your circle that need to know that you love them regardless of their sin. You've probably listed partners on your circle card. And you don't need to be the Christian who is undermining their ability to reach out to their circle because of the way that you're condemning other people's sin. Heard this story a while ago. It was about a pastor who moved to Southern Oregon. I think it was from Portland or some other metro area. And the Lord gave him a burden for the guy that was living across the street from him. So he learned that this guy had a significant interest in guns. And he thought, oh, maybe that'll be a way that I can start him talking, get into conversation, develop a friendship or whatever. So he uh, asks his neighbor uh, about his gun collection. And the neighbor just responded by saying something like, oh, what sort of guns are you interested in? This guy was a city boy. He didn't have any idea what he was talking about. And the conversation was over. (laughs) 
So this guy, this pastor, went back home and he subscribed to guns and ammo. (laughs) And he began to study. He genuinely developed an interest. And after a period of time, he casually was talking to the same neighbor and he said, I was thinking about getting a handgun. Can you give me any recommendations? And the neighbor said, well, what kind of gun are you thinking about getting? Thinking that the guy had no more information than he had the last time. And the pastor replied, I'm thinking about getting a Glock. And he went on to describe the model and the magazine capacity and some of the accessories that he had thought about. And from that point on, those two men developed a friendship. And for that pastor, it led to opportunities for him to share gospel truth with that man. The pastor was not faking his interest. He genuinely cared for this man. And he showed that care by coming to that man on his terms. I think we need to take that under advisement when we want to create a wall of division between us and them. Does God care about my sexual identity? Does God care about my sexual activity? You better believe it. He created that area of my life. He created it for my pleasure and for my purpose and for my fulfillment. And as his followers, we need to align ourselves with those things theologically under his authority. And then we need to start reminding ourselves that it is on us to care for people that are confused about that area of their life, their sexual identity. They are made in the image of God and they need, if they are confused and they're acting out, they need an answer to the spiritual sickness that they may not even know they have. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we say thank you because without the coming of your son to earth, um, we were spiritually sick. We were spiritually helpless. uh, But you genuinely loved us and you made a way to bridge the gap. And so, Father, I pray that as we as we operate in this world, that we would see ourselves as your ambassadors that can go out and offer your love. Father, help us to genuinely care for people. I know for me that's a struggle sometimes. Help us to genuinely care for people, even if they're different than us. Even if they do things that make us uncomfortable. God, give us your love with which we can care for them. And Father, may the result be the expansion of your kingdom in ways that we could have never imagined. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.